Hello, uh, today I'm talking with Fraser Fernhead, the founder of The House Crowd, the world's first property crowdfunding platform and author of a best-selling book, The Alternative Guide to Property Investment. Hi Fraser, can we do a quick introduction for those who aren't familiar with you and your company? When when you started The House Crowd in, was it 2012? Yeah. Property crowdfunding didn't, simply didn't exist. How did you come up with the idea and uh, how, how does it work? Hi Paul. Um, very simple really. I guess I've been working in the property industry for, for quite a while. I'd had a property investment consultancy that I, I sold back in 2007, um, just before the financial crash. Um, and around 2010, 2011, some of my old clients approached me again. They wanted to start um, investing in property. There were a lot of repossessions around at that time. Um, and they wanted to start building their property portfolios again. Now, some of these clients were fortunate enough to have large sums of money but even if they had you know a few hundred thousand pounds sooner or later that money would run out mm. and there were others who wanted to get involved but the banks weren't lending or they needed to come up with large deposits um, larger amounts of money than people had now at that time there were there were companies that had just started like your crowdcube funding circles Oprah had been around for a number of years and there wasn't anyone doing this in the property space and I thought well, why not take what they're doing and apply it to property cut out the banks and let people invest together, crowd them together essentially so they can pool resources, invest together and then share the profits together. Um, I particularly liked the idea of cutting out the banks as I uh, myself and a lot of people I know, especially those people involved in property, had had very bad experiences with the, the banks, um, people like RBS and Lloyds in particular. Is that why you thought it would work? I, I think so. I think at that time the zeitgeist was, was, was well, I think it still is to a large degree, is, is very much anti-banks. Um, you know, they're, they've proven time and time again they don't act in the most ethical ways um, they don't act fairly towards small businesses they've destroyed many small businesses over the course of the last 10 years and frankly being able to run any business without them um, is is very attractive to me and I think to a lot of other people so you know I thought well let's cut out the banks um, invest together and share together um, the profits and have, have a much more equitable business model for everybody Mm. When when you started, the business was very much about um, buy to let. It was, um, but it seems that um, your business is that's not such a big part of your business now. Is that right? It it is right. Um, you know, being being British, I think we um, we have this strong desire to to own our own property and uh, buy to let since nineteen ninety six has been incredibly popular. However, over the course of the last four or five years the government through introducing uh, numerous pieces of legislation and changes to taxation have made it in my opinion virtually unfeasible for an individual to invest in buy to let um, in, in a profitable way and you know it, it's so problematical with the amount of red tape you've got to deal with um, that it, it's really not worth it so we Part of the way along our company journey, we've been trading for six years now, we started to offer debt-based products that paid a fixed rate of return um, on properties, either lending, um, whether, whether the money lent was secured against property, or lending to property developers. 
at a fixed rate of interest. And um, this very, very quickly proved to be much more popular than the buy-to-let side of things. I think with the, the, you know, the rise of the internet, the sharing economy, all your companies like you know, your Ubers or other car sharing facilities, um, people are sharing everything these days, whether it be boats, private jets, cars, e- even you know, lawnmowers and things like that. There are now websites where you can, you know, communities of people can share these things. And ownership's become a lot less important than it was perhaps 20 or so years ago. Um, I think the same principle applies to property investment. You don't have to actually physically own a property to be able to earn very good returns from it. Mm. Frankly, the banks have been doing this for decades by lending pe- you know, money out as mortgages, which you secured against the properties. Mm. And we're essentially enabling people to do exactly the same thing, invest mm. like a bank, but in a much more ethical way, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So what do you think will happen to the buy-to-let market or the private rented sector, as it's sometimes called? Um, Well, I think traditional buy-to-let for the time being, for for an individual now to come into that market, is just, as I said, it's just just not feasible. There's there's additional stamp duty. There's so much red tape. You're not, um, letting agents can't charge tenants fees. Those fees get passed back to the landlord. Um, And most tellingly, for purely political reasons, the government has changed the rules um, allowing mortgage interest rate to be deducted against income. Now that is so discriminatory. There isn't another business in the country that isn't allowed to offset the costs of borrowing against their income. And yet the government bowing to pressure from groups like Shelter or whoever else have decided to make it more difficult for landlords by not allowing them to offset their mortgage costs against revenue. Now that is going to drive many landlords, if not into bankruptcy, but into severe financial hardship. Um, and it's simply not going to be possible to run a standard buy-to-let business mm. um, unless you set up a limited company and, and go through the rigmarole of doing that. What what the government's, government's rationale seems to be is they want to basically pull the rug from under the feet of all the, the small landlords who've, with you know, two or three extra properties who've built those up and switch their support to um, much larger organisations and companies who are buying blocks of apartments, often with fancy facilities, and, and throwing their support behind, behind that purpose-built accommodation. In my mind, that's incredibly short-sighted. Not everyone wants to live in fancy apartment buildings, especially not families with children, they want proper traditional houses. Um, it ignores the benefits that your small private landlord have bought in providing much needed houses. And frankly, not everyone can afford to live in those apartment buildings. So, you know, I, I am fortunate enough to own quite a few um, buy to let properties myself, which are new build flats, but they, they rent for a lot of money, some of them for over a thousand pounds a month, and they've got the gyms and the concierge and things like that. Well, not many people can afford those. So I think the government are going to realise sooner or later, and probably later, knowing governments, that they've shot themselves in the foot by basically making it impossible for um, you know, the, the, the couple of million private landlords out there to provide quality family housing for people. I think a few bad eggs have essentially soured it for everybody else. Yeah. You, know, you, yeah. you read in the press about the occasional landlord renting out a, a room under the stairs for £800 a month or something. Well, you know, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, 
But, you know, we're talking, there are a couple of million landlords in the country and they're, they're talking about a few people that the press put on the front pages and make it as though they're, they're typical landlords. Well, they're not. Most landlords are, are decent, respectable people who are just trying to provide for their retirement Indeed. and that they've been totally stabbed in the back by the government. Indeed. So do you offer your investors any buy-to-let properties to invest in? Yeah, we, we do. We, we've, we've been very... Um, it's, it's very hard to find good opportunities but what we have done is managed to come up with a model that takes away a lot of the strain of typical buy to let so these are the properties we do rent out on a buy to let basis are um, typical terrace properties they've been um, converted normally from three beds to four beds and they are rented out to a large corporation who pay um, a fixed rental to us that corporation pays for all the maintenance costs and they sign a five-year lease. So if you imagine the typical problems of a landlord are damage to the property by tenants, non-payment of rent, and all the other expenses that go with it, um, we've basically eradicated those problems to you know, the nth degree, um, we get a very, very good yield on them, typically 9.5% before costs. and they're excellent, they're completely hassle-free for the investor. They get simply get a good return on their money. After all the costs, it normally nets down to around 5.5% a year net. Plus, when the property's sold, they'll get a share of any capital growth that um, there is. Now, we always do say, of course, capital growth is you know, it is speculative. There is no guarantee, especially no. with all the, all the uncertainty in the market these days, that there will be capital growth. But I think since the year... I know this because our financial directors just produced figures for it. Um, since the year 2000, property has increased and on average at 10% a year. Mm. So there's no guarantee it will continue to do that. But I think most people have a, a general optimism that property prices will continue to rise. Yeah. So what about the, the general pro- well, the property market in general going forward? How do you see that panning out over the next five years? Say? It's hard to say because I don't, I don't think there is one property market, for example, and there's no doubt that properties in prime London, um, the prime London markets, your Knightsbridge, Kensington's, Chelsea's or what have you, um, have decreased in value over the past 12 months and are likely to continue to do so, perhaps by as much as 10%. However, properties in the the, the West Midlands have increased by, I think, 7 or 8% over the last year. In the northwest, they've they've increased to a similar level, and you know there's there's only one thing you can say about the forecast people make at the start of every year is that 99% of them are going to be wrong. <laughs> so I, I'm not really a big one for forecasting things. I, I would say the fundamentals in the housing market um, in the northwest, which is the area we we focus on, remain strong. There is definitely a demand for good quality family housing and there is definitely a lack of um, supply for it. So based on that and the fact mortgages are still and will continue despite a couple of interest rate rises, continue to make them more affordable for people. Um, I, I would say, you know, prices will probably continue to rise at about four or five percent a year in the northwest market as for other areas of the country um, I wouldn't profess to know as much about those um, and couldn't really say but um, yeah what one, one, one thing I will I will say is that prices in the northwest I mean, are still 
well, certainly relatively affordable. I think the average price of a property in London compared to the average salary is 19 times the average salary. In the Northwest, I, I believe, I think I recall this rightly, it's about four or five times, which is huge it's a huge difference. It's still, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to gloss over the fact that it could still be a struggle um, for many people to afford the house they want. Um, but people who want to own houses have to be prepared to make sacrifices, I think, you know. Um, and if it's, all I'm saying is it, the demand is there and it, it's a lot more affordable than many areas of the country, yeah. like Oxford, for example, yeah. which I believe is the most expensive area in the country to buy a property compared yeah. to uh, the salaries. But even so, for what you were saying, given the caveats that you have to um, you you have to uh, mention around property or any sort of capital assets appreciating in value, your outlook is still fairly positive. I think so. Um, again, going harking back to the the figures that uh, Lewis, our financial director, produced recently. Any investment is a risk, but if you invested in a FTSE 100 tracker fund in the year 2000, this eight seven what well, just over 17 years later you'd be worth around 2% more than you were back in 2000. If you'd invested in the housing market, it's grown on average at 10% a year. So there are always risks when you invest. Um, so I don't like to forecast the future, but I think the fundamentals of the housing market in the UK do remain strong. and. It's up to you whether, whether you agree or and are prepared to take that oh, risk. Oh, that's great. That's fabulous. Thank you very much. Can I quickly turn to uh, to your book? You published a book last year, The Alternative Guide to Property Investment. Why did you write it? Um, I think I, I have a desire to, to kind of, you know, there's a, there's a complete lack of financial education in this country. They don't, you don't get taught financial education at school or university. There's very little information available that's biased. You go to a financial advisor and... Well, let's put this way, I haven't been particularly impressed by any financial advisors I've, I, I've met. And due to the changes, again, in the law, they're, they're no longer allowed to take commissions from the product providers. Um, so they, pro they provide a very narrow, limited range of advice to the people who can afford their fees, and that their fees are quite considerable. So what I wanted to do was write a very basic, easy to understand book to show people that there are genuine alternatives out there and we're not talking about highly speculative things like your bitcoins or buying teak forests in Ghana or what have you these are regulated industries offering sensible investments and I wanted to explain to people how they worked what the risks were how you can mitigate them, what you should look for in, in terms of a, a company to work with or companies to work with um, in just a very unbiased, factual and, and hopefully informative and entertaining way. Um, and it's, you know, it's proven to go be very popular. Well, uh, I hope you forgive me for saying this, uh, but I've read the book and, and it does explain this whole comparatively new process of crowdfunding appears to be lending really, really well. To that extent, what do you think the future is for crowdfunding? Do you see it's storming ahead and becoming the alternative means of uh, lending going forward? Um, I think we have still very much, I mean the crowdfunding industry um, has been going six, seven years now in the UK. Mm. I talk to people all the time who've never even heard of it. So we're still, you know, a tiny fraction of the people in the country have heard about it. Even fewer have started to take advantage of it. So it's it's nowhere near going mainstream yet. I think that could quite easily be 
another couple of years. Um, the government have clearly thrown their support behind it. They've created an innovative finance ISA, so people can now invest in peer-to-peer -peer loans um, in a tax-free wrapper. They can invest up to £20,000 a year in that. And that, that will undoubtedly help give the industry greater credibility and lead to becoming more mainstream. I know people who think it could very well replace banks and traditional finance companies as the main way to lend in the future. That's probably, you know, knowing how slow things move, probably a couple of decades off. Um, but I know banks are wary of the industry. They, they don't like it um, because it offers people a better alternative. Quite frankly, it's yeah. more transparent, yeah. it's fairer. Um, banks have had it their own way for far too long and I think the more uh, forward thinking of them recognize that the peer-to-peer -peer and crowdfunding industries are a real threat to their business yeah. or their, their retail business at least yeah I can see that um, finally then uh, a pretty personal question really in, in terms of uh, you what what doing what do you get most joy out of doing what you do <laughs> um, I like coming up with ideas you know I get really excited about new ideas. I have them quite often. I have to get reined back in by my business partners and just, you know, let's just do one thing at a time. Um, I really like writing. I've, I've always wanted to be a writer, hence the reason I've written a novel and, and now this um, this crowdfunding book. And I, I love writing marketing and copy. I think within the business itself, what gives me the biggest satisfaction is the fact we've now we've got a, um, a property development arm of the company and you know we're really helping to build quality houses and much needed houses um, and there's a real sense of satisfaction about seeing those houses come together and people move into them and creating really you know these aren't like fancy schmancy multi-million pound houses these are good quality family homes um, around the 200 to 450,000 pound price bracket but I'm, I'm really proud of those and we're, we've got about 200 homes in development at the moment and um, hope to increase that to around 300 by the end of this year oh excellent well that's a really good point to end on thank you very much indeed and uh, continued success going forward thank you for it thanks Paul to find out more about crowdfunding in general, read Fraser's book, The Alternative Guide to Property Investment, available on Amazon.co.uk, or to find out more about The House Crowd, visit thehousecrowd.com.